Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 23rd episode of the Trojan Venture Podcast. I'm back today with our second episode of November, I think, and really excited because today we're going to have on a USC alum. I feel I think we haven't had a USC alum on the show for at least a couple of episodes, so nice to get back to our roots, as you could say. So to not waste any more time, today I'm extremely excited to welcome Nick Mindell, who is a partner at Amberstone, a San Francisco-based venture capital firm that invests in breakthrough food, beverage, and consumer companies. Nick is a USC alum, getting, getting his undergraduate degree at USC before returning to complete his MBA with a focus on finance and entrepreneurship. Nick started out his career in investment banking at North Point Advisors before moving to private credit, THL Credit. After his MBA, Nick worked as an associate at Piper Jaffray before co-founding and serving as partner at Trail Post Ventures, a Bay Area-based consumer-focused venture capital firm. Nick is a board member at Juneshine, a hard kombucha beverage company, and an investor in other leading consumer brands. So really excited to kick this one off. So let's get Nick on the call. Hey, Nick. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, no, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. We have a really we have a lot to discuss today. Really excited to have you on, especially to hear more about the venture space and especially investments in consumer products, which is something that I haven't learned that much about. So really excited uh, for all we're going to discuss. But to start, I want to dig into a little bit about the beginning of your, of your career. You spend time in investment banking and in private credit. So what parts of these experience would you say were most valuable for evaluating investment opportunities at Amberstone? Yeah, I mean, I think they both provide different perspectives and different value. Uh, from the investment banking side, I think more than anything, it gave me the toolkit to effectively look at businesses and understand what their fundamentals look like, how to financially model out what those projections could look like, how to think very strategically about what are the different metrics that we should be paying attention to and that ultimately creates successful companies. Um, and also giving me just kind of that deep education on food and beverage in particular. And then I would say the multi-unit restaurants that I worked with as well. Um, from the private credit side of things, I think venture is all about the upside. It's all about thinking through what could the potential returns on this investment look like? And oftentimes we lose sight of what the downside scenarios could look like and how to protect ourselves in the downside scenario. And I, I think credit has given me the background to say, you know, not everything's going to be perfect and not everything's going to go the right direction or, or be a you know, 15, 20 X return. And so, you know, understanding what the downside is, understanding how to protect ourselves in the downside and, and being able to model that out um, certainly is something that I think private credit gave me a lot of experience doing and uh, a good perspective to bring in. And for the companies that are currently in your portfolio, are you recommending to any of these founders that they take on debt or some form of credit along with your equity alignment? Or um, has that not really taken place for you guys? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the benefits of being within the consumer space. Most of these brands are um, are revenue generating, if not cash flow positive, uh, good gross margins, um, and it's it's sort of, I think, different than traditional venture. Um, and so, with with the financial structure of the companies that we've backed, 
many of them are capable of bringing on debt. Um, now, it's not going to be sort of your traditional debt. It could be working lines of credit. It could be uh, equipment financing. Um, there's there's just different creative ways to finance these businesses. But um, for the most part, yeah, debt, debt certainly is going to play a role here. Um, and I think as they continue to mature, uh, it's a great, great source of non-dilutive capital that um, ultimately unlocks a lot of growth without having to give up a lot of equity. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. And so what initially got you interested in investing in the consumer product space specifically? <laughs> um, I was born into it. I, uh, I've always looked up to my dad as a, a mentor and an inspiration. And uh, I watched him build a, a restaurant chain from zero to going public in 1998, I believe. And then uh, going through a go private transaction with a private equity fund out of New York, subsequently bolting on Corner Bakery as part of it, and then selling to another private equity fund in uh, Atlanta. And ultimately, kind of that that progression of watching him build his business, being involved in the consumer space, working as a dishwasher, a busboy, a server, a, a, a manager. Uh, and interacting with people and, and seeing why they're making consumer purchasing decisions on a daily basis was it was fascinating with me, uh, and it 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 really kind of I think just got in my blood. Um, you know, ultimately I didn't want to go out and start restaurants. I thought that that was a little bit a little bit too risky. But um, being able to take those experiences and work at least on the financial aspect and and working with founders and entrepreneurs that have grown their businesses within the consumer space uh, was just something that felt natural to me. It just, it was a fit. I understood the language that they were all speaking. I could speak the same language as they they did. And uh, and the numbers all just made sense because I've been working in it and around it for so long. So uh, I think it was just a really natural progression of growing up and, and, uh, and being in that environment. And Going off of your dad's success in the consumer space and now your involvement on the investment side, in your opinion, what would you say is the first thing a new consumer product company should do in order to set itself apart in a space that's often crowded and saturated? I mean, I, I think there's two things and there's two things like number one, whatever product you're creating. It either has to taste good if you're in food and beverage, or it has to be effective within beauty and personal care. And those are those are really the main categories. We'll look at pet, we'll look at baby, we'll look at some household goods, but I would say those are the main categories we look at. And number two, and I think this is where a lot of people probably get in the most trouble, your unit level economics, what you produce your product for, and then what you subsequently sell your product for, that margin it has to be a margin that enables you to have a very viable and very believable path to profitability. Too often, you know, we're seeing maybe a, a beverage brand that that has a gross margin at 25%. And they come and talk to me and they say, yeah, but, but with volume, we'll be at 35%. And to me, I'm like, number one, you're probably not going to make it to a point where you can even scale to that, given that you know, 75 cents of every dollar is gone before you even get to really your sales and marketing efforts and paying your employees and 
everything that kind of goes along with actually having to run your business. Um, and so, you know, for me, I look at, I look at these brands that, you know, a beverage brand that's at 35% from the, from day one, now with volume, I think you'll make it to the point where you can actually scale to have volume. Then I think you'll actually add 10 points of margin with that volume. Then like the story becomes much more believable where you can run a 45, maybe even 50% margin business. And then you have 50 cents of every dollar that you've brought in on sales going to pay your employees, going to pay for sales and marketing, you're going to pay your GNA, your R&D, like where you can actually cover your expenses and then still have money left over to drive profitable growth where you get off the hamster wheel of having to raise capital. And I want to kind of harp on that point you made about the marketing uh, point. I think for consumer products, especially in the digital age we're in, I think if I would have to kind of add on to your answer, maybe even a third category would be about brand recognition, especially for some of these brands. And so how would you, what are kind of the most effective ways that you think companies should go about branding and marketing themselves in this day and age? You're, you're going into the part of my brain. I forget if it's left or right brain, <laughs> the creative brain versus numbers. Uh, so we're going to, we're going to dive into the part that is the creative side and not nearly as, as well developed. Um, but, you know, some of the, some of the successful strategies I've seen, um, certainly you know, if you can selectively and successfully partner with a celebrity that obviously can, can grow your brand, uh, incredibly fast. I, I think Goodall's being a very good example, Gal Gadot, um, you know, she's been able to blow that brand out of the water. Um, you know, it, it's tough because it's an early stage brand and usually in the areas we play in, you just don't have a lot of dollars left over to support marketing. And ultimately, one of the things we look at is how much of your net revenue is being spent or how much how much is your marketing as a percentage of net revenue. And, you know, we don't want to see that very high. We want to see that your brand and your product are having this organic brand recognition where Consumers simply find it, try it, and then come back and repurchase it. And then they go and tell their friends about it. And you have this word of mouth uh, type of growth. Um, you know, you look at like Poppy and Olipop and Liquid Death. I mean, these are brands that are putting 100, 150, 250 million of marketing dollars behind it versus some brands that have been able to grow with very limited marketing spend and all because, you know, they have offered something new. They've offered a compelling founder story that people resonate with. Um, so I think there's different ways to get your your voice and your brand out there. It, it all comes down to understanding who you want your consumer to be, how you can speak to them, and how you can do it in the most cash efficient manner. And when you ask founders, I think one of the key questions that investors ask is, who's your customer, right? Who are you selling your product to? What would be advice you would give to founders or even students that are looking to be entrepreneurs about really understanding who your target market is, not just, you know, everybody likes popcorn. So it's going to be everybody. How do you really go about segmenting that? So it says, this is makes sense. This is who we're actually going after. I think it's a little bit unfair. I think you know, the one thing I would say is always assume that the investor has more information than you do. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we've made a concerted effort to invest into data resources that give us uh, that enable us to understand who the purchaser is of almost any product in the United States and being able to break that down 
by multiple different demographic segments, multiple different psychographic segments where we can truly understand like, okay, it's a college educated, uh, it's college educated female with two kids at home, but less than four kids at home with a salary of this and education level of this and, um, you know, maybe three or four other aspects that we can look at. So we almost inherently define or understand who your consumer is sometimes better or earlier than a founder truly does. Um, but, you know, if I were to give advice to a founder or to a student thinking about founding a, a company and defining who they want their customer to be is, you know, really go speak to people, speak to, uh, speak to a wide swath of people. Don't just speak to your friend group, go talk to, you know, the 50 plus year old individuals in your parents' organizations and, and your parents' friends talk to, uh, you know, maybe if you had an older, older sibling, talk to their friends and what they're purchasing and why they're purchasing it. What are their pain points? What are things that you're looking to solve? And then backtrack and say, okay, well, you know, the, uh, the parents with two kids that are, are, are 35 to 40 year old were, you know, they're really looking for a cleaner uh, baby food company that in introduces allergens because that's a big concern of theirs is, you know, what happens when my kids start to eat eggs? So maybe I could create a product there. Or, you know, what happens when, um, you know, we've seen like a, a, a big push into menopause, like there's a, a very large swath of individuals where nobody's really appealing to them with new products that have gone effectively after menopause. Like, okay, like that's a very large market share that I could speak to. I might have to speak to them differently. They're not digitally native and I'm going to have to maybe do like mailers or, or something kind of old fashioned, but you know, that's something interesting. I think the worst thing you can do when creating a product is try to go too broad. I, I think it's much easier to stay narrow and stay deep and then expand out adjacently over time, um, which also kind of don't like limit yourself by the brand you create. Like if you go out and you say, okay, my brand is called Keto Cookie, you'll never be able to expand out of Keto and Cookie for the rest of your brand's life. Now, if you went out, you're like, you know, I'm, I'm A plus brand, like whatever, I'm making it up. But like, you could be anything at that point. You could be popcorn and then you could be chips and then you could be pretzels. Like, don't limit yourself by your brand architecture because that's going to limit the eventual audience that you can appeal to. And you were a USC grad, both undergrad and you got your MBA. And so I'm curious- Fight on. <laughs> fight on. I'm curious why you felt that you wanted to come back and get, get your MBA and what that value add was for you specifically. I mean- there's a professional reason and then there was a personal reason so <laughs> prof professionally i knew and i guess this is personal like, i knew i wanted to be on the west coast and so i wanted to go to a school that had a west coast network and a deep west coast network and so for me when i looked at that i i couldn't bear to go to ucla like i think i would have been physically pained by that um, and frankly, I couldn't get into Stanford. So, you know, it really left me with kind of two options and it was, it was Cal and it was SC and I'd grown up in the Bay area. I didn't want to kind of go back there and, and, and kind of get into the tech scene. And I liked that USC was a little bit more broad in their approach, um, and who they had relationships from a company perspective. Um, and then 
you know, I distinctly remember I was at Michigan. I was looking at, at, at Ross School of Business and the high in December was one. <laughs> one degree was the high. And I called up my buddies that were in Santa Monica and I said, hey guys, like it's December 18th or something. What's the temperature in Santa Monica? He goes, it's uh, 78 today. Yeah, okay, that sealed it for me. So I didn't want to be cold and I wanted a West Coast network. I think those it's, you sound that's a very West Coast answer, admittedly, but yeah, it makes it makes total sense. Um, and so I want to yep. shift back to the, um, the investment side at Amberstone now. One thing that I found interesting is Bessemer has been known to publish an anti-portfolio of successful companies that they passed on. Um, so essentially, these are companies that they got pitched that turned out to be great opportunities, great companies, and they just passed them by. And so if you had to make an anti-portfolio for Amberstone, what would be some of those companies that would come to mind? This is painful. Um, well, I'm 0 for 2 in the uh, the acne patch market. Uh, we had an opportunity to look at Hero Cosmetics. God, I think it was the seed round. Um, you know, definitely below, call it a $30 million valuation. And... They ended up selling for six hundred million about two years later. Mm. Totally missed that. Um, we looked at Starface, uh, another acne patch brand, much more kind of Gen Z focused. I think the last I looked, they were doing more than sixty-five million in conventional kind of Mulo sales. So your point of sales data, you know, more than sixty-five million. And I think we looked at them, and maybe they were doing twenty, twenty-five million. So 0 for 2 on acne patches. Um, the Good Crisp is one that I'll always kick myself about. It's uh, it's a, a natural and cleaner version of Pringles. Um, we looked at them. Yeah, you know, their gross margins were challenged, but my argument was, hey, this is a this is a temporary challenge. Um, they really ship product from Southeast Asia into the United States during COVID. The cost of a a sea freight container shot up to about sixteen to eighteen thousand dollars when historically they're you know more like five to six thousand and it just absolutely decimated their margin but it, it was temporary it was going to come back down and margins have subsequently come back down or sea freight costs have subsequently come back down their margins have recovered and they have gone absolutely gangbusters and i think some of the best leadership in the industry uh, with some of the best product in the industry. And again, like good crisp, like very, very extendable brand. They've extended now into these puff balls, as well as a competitor to a Lay's ruffle potato chips. And every time they've gone out, they've absolutely nailed it. Um, I think they'll finish the year somewhere north of 70 million in revenue. And yeah, I, I definitely, I missed those three. And then, um, yeah, those those would be the three that stand out to me. And so, are there any kind of specific lessons that you're honestly taking from that, or is it more of just a reflection of that's how the venture game game works, and you you miss on some home runs sometimes, and that's kind of the nature of the game? Or are there kind of things from those experiences that you say, huh, maybe I was looking at it the wrong way. I should look at it differently next time. I mean, you, you always want to try to refine what you're doing and get better at what you're doing. And so for us, missing something certainly 
I think you take a lot of pride in the fact that we actually got to look at it. That means we did enough right that they felt that we were somebody they wanted to speak to because they felt we could be a good partner for them. Now, not making the investment, like you have to ask yourself, what what would have changed our mind? What would what would we have looked at differently? I, I think we should have spent more time on good crisp, understanding the margin, the historical cost of sea freight and how, and really dig, digging into what this dislocation would have looked like. I think ultimately that would have answered the fact that like these, the sea freight was going to come down. It wouldn't have fixed this existential threat where they had no backup production capabilities. They were produced in one location in Southeast Asia that if anything changed, they were done with production. Um, so I think that, that that certainly wouldn't have alleviated that fear, but I think we could have understood the margin better. With Hero, I think it was all about understanding Amazon better. And that's something we've made a concerted effort to do. When we looked at Hero, the majority of their sales, the vast majority were coming from Amazon. And we hadn't done a good enough job up to that point of understanding the quality of revenue that Amazon produces. I think over the subsequent three and a half years since we've looked at that deal, we've gotten to understand Amazon and view it simply as another retail channel and really have a, a powerful understanding of what what that looks like and how brands, what good looks like for a brand on Amazon. Um, and then Starface, like, I don't know. I feel like we just didn't see, we saw the exit in Hero we didn't think that there could be another brand that could grow behind Hero. We probably didn't understand Gen Z enough. And I think just missed it on category more than anything. So lesson probably being understand deeper dives into categories a little bit. And so one final question I have then is kind of looking forward. It could be within the consumer product uh, sector or it could be just venture more broadly. What areas or sectors do you think are have the most opportunity over the next couple of years that you think are most ripe for investment? That could either be for Amberstone or just kind of investment dollars within the ecosystem in general. You know, I'm going to speak about Amberstone because uh, I've gone so deep into understanding consumer that to speak to AI or uh, enterprise software or something like that, I'm just not going to give it enough. Uh, I don't know enough to be dangerous in those categories. From a consumer perspective, I really love where nootropics is going and I love where functional shots and beverages are going. I think that you know coffee is the most abused substance in the world. Um, and uh, or sorry, it's probably the most it's yeah, it's the most abused caffeine, the most abused substance in the world. So finding replacements, finding alternatives to more effectively kind of power the human body going forward, I think is really interesting. And I think also, I mean, the prevalence of Adderall and Ritalin and all of these kind of ADHD associated drugs, I think wreak havoc on individuals, brains, bodies, relationships, et cetera. So finding ways in which you can work with the human body to achieve similar focus, attention, uh, work-related results without the associated, uh, I mean, the associated kind of drop-off, the associated exhaustion, the associated kind of mental drain that people feel when they're on those ADHD drugs. Um, 
it gets me really excited. Um, you know, I think this intersection of clean ingredients and scientifically backed efficacy within beauty and personal care is really fascinating. I think we're in the first out of the first inning of the first game of a World Series there. Um, and then I think, you know, I still think NA and personally, like, I still think we see federal federal legalization of THC. And I think the moment that happens, it's going to open up a huge, huge world of individuals that enjoy feeling a little something, a little relaxed, a little whatever, but don't want to get to the hangover stage with, uh, with alcohol, you know, maybe have had issues with blacking out or saying inappropriate things or, you know, dialing your ex or whatever that looks like. THC sort of solves these issues. It, it, it allows you to maintain kind of your body control, your mental acuity. It allows you to, um, to not feel terrible the next day and to remain in control. And I think that's, that's what NA and a lot of NA is about is, is improving your health and remaining kind of in control and not feeling terrible the next day. And so, you know, that certainly is an area that would excite me as well. Well, I really want to thank you again for your time. Uh, it's great to speak to another Trojan, especially one that's doing a lot of great stuff within the venture space and in consumer products more specifically. So really thank you again. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Sounds good. Well, I want to thank Nick again for taking the time to chat with me today. It was great to hear from a USC grad, both at the undergrad and graduate level. Really, my favorite parts of the episode were hearing about his anti-portfolio. I know it was probably a little painful for him, but was obviously a lot of lessons learned. So that was that was good to hear about. And then his his ideas for the future of the consumer and food and beverage industries was also really interesting. Um, and I thought there was a lot of lessons learned there. So this was a really great episode. Hope you guys all enjoyed and we will be back soon. Thanks.